I'm Kaitel. And I'm Joe. And we're the United Mates. Back in our school days, a shared passion for football brought us together as best friends. Today, we're separated by an ocean. I live in our hometown, London. And these days, I live in LA. But we still enjoy nothing more than chatting about the beautiful game. So we started a podcast. Join us. A few more old mates from school here and there. And new friends too from the world of professional football and beyond. This is the United Mates Football Podcast. Hello and welcome to the United Mates Football Podcast. My name is Joe and whilst I'm in London, I am of course joined by my co-host all the way from LA, Kaitel. We're also delighted to have a very special guest on this podcast. He is the manager of sports business development at the Orlando-based Disney Sports Attractions. And during nearly 25 years of working for Disney, amongst a wide array of achievements, he's been the leading force behind the Disney Soccer Showcase, which is a youth football tournament where teenagers from all over the world come to Orlando and quite literally showcase their skills in front of some of the leading US college soccer scouts. Um, I'm also very pleased to report that our guest today, like myself, is a Spurs fan, which is nice. We've had too many Arsenal fans on recently, so it's good to readdress that balance. And now I know, I've known Kaitel for so long now that he almost feels like family to me in some ways. However, on today's podcast, um, our guest is in fact a genuine member of my family. So a big welcome to the United Mates Football Podcast to my very own uncle, Patrick Dix. Patrick, how are you? I'm great, Joe. What a great introduction. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know, very, very happy to have you here, Patrick. Um, it's always, always good to chat to you. And yeah, it's a surreal doing it in this format, but very excited. Very excited. It's amazing what technology can do. You've got California, London and Orlando. So fantastic. I know. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you, Zoo. But um, Kai, um, we're obviously recording this episode, well, it's only a few days now from the Euros starting. So I know you're based in LA, but are you going to be tuning in to cheer on England for the Euros? Yeah, absolutely. I think what we've got lined up for this upcoming weekend, we're going to chat with our good friend Ante from Croatian Sports. Obviously, England are going to be kicking off their Euro campaign against Croatia, so I'll for sure be tuning into into that one. And I'm going to be pulling for the three Lions this summer, so we'll see how that goes. Otherwise, Patrick, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Typically, when we have guests on the show, we like to kick things off with them with an icebreaker question. And so for today... Given your history with Disney and with sports, the question for all of us is, who is your favorite fictional sporting character from the world of film? I'll share my answer first, and then I'll ask Joe so that Patrick has a little bit more time to think. And uh, whether or not this was a a kid's movie, they don't have to be kids' movies, but um, more just questionable on, on my behalf. As a kid, I loved Happy Gilmore, anything Adam Sandler really, but Happy Gilmore in particular, the movie about an amateur hockey player with anger issues, who becomes a professional golfer in order to save his grandmother's house from foreclosure. They just don't write him like that anymore. Um, So Happy, who's Adam Sandler's character in that one, is my favorite fictional sporting character. Joe, who's yours? I like Happy Gilmore a lot too, but I think mine's going to be Chaz Michael Michaels, um, Will Ferrell's character in the film Blades of Glory. So I I can't claim to be a big, you know, figure skating fan, but I love that film and he's, um, He's a great character, and I guess he is a fictional sportsman. So, yeah, Chaz Michael Michaels gets my vote. 
I'm going to go completely a different direction. So the Justin Sudeikis, and I, you guys have got to watch this, where he's the football manager of Richmond Strikers, the, 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 the football team in London. Have you guys seen that on Apple TV? Oh, Ted, Ted Lasso, is it? Ted Lasso. That's the guy I like, because I think he's just absolutely hilarious and clueless, actually. So uh, it makes sense. <laughs> so, uh, I love that one. That's good. There's plenty more, but that's uh, I could go with Rocky, right? But nah, it's too, too old school. <laughs> Ted Lasso gets the vote. I think there was some funny video he did years ago related to Tottenham before the series as well. Yeah, the, the Spurs coach. But yeah, there we go. Ted Lasso for Patrick. But, uh, How do you we get him right now, Joe? I, I bet we should probably get him. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it'd be better than having no one, to be honest. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, Patrick, let's um, let's talk a bit about um, your childhood. And obviously you're in Orlando now and you've been in the, the States for a long time. But you grew up in Bristol and like, like most kids, you were very into football. But unlike most kids, your dad was the, the manager of the local team, Bristol City. And actually, when you were growing up, he would go on to um, get Bristol City promoted to the top flight. This is, of course, Alan Dix, who is also my granddad. Who, you know, very proud that he's my granddad. But um, as a young boy, Patrick, who obviously was obsessed with football, how, how exciting was that experience of seeing your dad take Bristol City up. But yeah, what, what was it like for you? Uh, it, I mean, it's like, uh, over here they call it July 4th. Over in England we call it, what, the bonfire night or Guy Fawkes night when all the fireworks go off. And every day I would get up. No, no social media, no technology, just three channels on the television and the newspaper every day that you'd read. But I was so ingrained every single day listening to the radio when games were going on and it was consumed my life. And uh, I was very lucky to be in that situation where I was allowed and afforded to be able to go into the dressing room where the players were at eight, nine and 10 years old. You hear, you see things that are very strange at that age, but you hear things and you become part of a family where it's a very exclusive club. And uh, when you have a family member involved, like my father, it was just incredible. So I remember being at games and games finishing at uh, 20 to five on a Saturday and then playing in the parking lot till 11 o'clock at night with my friends, waiting for my dad to be done with the other manager up in his office, having a few Coca-Colas plus other stuff. And um, it was just, a, a, it, it was an amazing time in my life and so, so lucky to be able to go through that and really get the emotions where you realize what color you bleed and even though I'm a major Tottenham fan, I'll always be a Bristol City fan because that's what was ingrained in me ever since I was a child. It was difficult when my father got let go, um, but it was just, I was so lucky, just so lucky to have that experience. Yeah, I mean, it's an experience that lots of people would love to have and it just made it even better that I know sadly he would get sacked eventually, but that whole promotion season and the, the few years in Division One, wow. I mean, that must have been... Must have when we got promotion, Joe, when we beat Portsmouth, we, the bad thing was we scored the first goal in three minutes and we won 1-0. And as the game, 1977, beautiful evening uh, in, April, in April, and as the game went on, Bristol City, Ashton Gate must have had a close to 35, 36,000. But as the game got closer to the final whistle, knowing that Bristol City were going to be promoted, the fans just started coming over the, over the gates and over the wall. And I remember my dad looking down the, uh, the sideline and telling me to come up to the, the dugout. And I imagine, and then the final whistle went off. And oh my God, I've never seen anything like it in my life. And it was like everybody in that stadium won the lottery. Everyone. 
And the feeling you get was the most incredible feeling that is very difficult to replicate. Now, a year later, Bristol City survived in the first division and drew with Coventry 2-2, which was a whole nother night at Highfield Road, which was even more amazing. So unfortunately, at that time in my life, I think I had the best two nights of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose it's, it's good to have them at some point. Um, oh. but, um, but you mentioned earlier, Patrick, obviously you said, you know, you were, you were part of this almost exclusive club in a way where you could go behind the scenes at a top flight club and you were able to get an insight into the world of a yeah professional sports team at a young age and what would you say were the main insights you kind of gathered as a young boy from being behind the scenes is there anything that you still kind of to yeah. this day remember yeah. and when, when, when the three of us watch football and we and we're supporting our teams and we really and you look through the television at these players and you've got, we've all got comments. Oh, this guy doesn't work hard enough. This guy doesn't do this. This guy's great. Harry Kane, brilliant. Um, the invincibles of Arsenal. But when you actually see them up close and real, you see the confidence on a daily basis that with all due respect to all of us, I know we have to just go through our jobs every day and we try and find our passion. These guys, if they're not self-confident and self-aware, that's all I ever got out going to training with my dad and watching these guys were that we are the best or I am the best. Don't forget Joe back then. There was only one sub and that sub barely came on unless there was an injury. So your starting 11 was your starting 11 week in, week out. But the confidence these players used to exude was amazing. And that's what I'll always take from that. Well, Patrick, you had those experiences as a child in the dressing rooms, the kind of fly on the wall experience that a lot of us are, are pretty jealous of. And you played a lot yourself, but on kind of a more negative side of things, you did, I'd say, probably have the rug pulled out from underneath you on some levels when you were served a bit of a double whammy, um, being told at, at trials and then even by your, your your dad that you were not good enough to go pro and that beyond that, being sent away to a school where um, they didn't even play football. I think it was cricket, cricket and rugby that you, you say that they played instead. So how did that combination of rejection and adversity affect you in the short term and I suppose bigger picture how influential is a family's support when it comes to young footballers' careers? Could that be a kind of make or break thing beyond just the levels of talent, having that family member fighting your corner? Well, one, first and foremost, fantastic uh, uh, questions and observations there, because we're going to be doing some things at Disney coming up to really address that. So as a young player, my dad till this day, Kai, will tell me, I never said that. I never, I never said anything about you not being good enough. But for, to this day, I can remember going to Bristol where the police dogs used to train at the bottom of that big hill leading up to Ashton Court. And um, remember being there at 12 years old, making these, and I never touched the ball in two bloody hours. This kid in front of me was so much better than I was. And then I remember the, the get your numbers on your chest and, and the guy goes, by my number. And I went, bloody hell, my dad's the manager. Does he know that? You know, 11 years old. And he goes, yeah, I know your dad's the manager, son. You're not good enough. And it was one of those moments in life you just go, wow. You know, you, you, it's a, learn, a lesson learned, right? And by the way, you don't think, you think you're good enough at the time, but then you kind of put things together and you realize as you get older. But the, the, the mental strength that I had, I was lucky in a, in a way that I always thought something different would happen in my life, right? going down the wrong road in Bristol as a 14, 15 year old, doing all kinds of silly things, um, kind of using the envelope with the umbrella of my father being someone pretty famous in the city to kind of use that as a barrier. And then having the ability to be, to, to go to a private boys school, right? And I always say over here in America, I went to Harry Hogwarts, you know, um, 
Harry Potter school. And it was that. And it was very, very, very brutal time for me from a mental perspective at 11 and 12 years old, 13, to try and get my head around this whole culture where in the dressing rooms after school, if a Bristol Rovers fan walked in, I was going to get a right hiding, you know? And, and if I didn't stand up for myself, and it was that whole, it wasn't bad. It was just part of go, growing up, right? We all went through it. We've all been through it. Um, and when one of the lads, uh, we had a bit of a tussle, got the cane, he had six of the best. The headmaster brought me in, goes, right, your turn, Dix. And I went, and he goes, oh, sit down. How's your dad doing? How's the team? And, I'm like, and then it, I didn't get caned, you know? And I'm like, well, that's pretty good. I quite like that. And I don't get in trouble. But the whole, the whole thing of playing cricket and rugby to me, I used to, so I used to go out to rugby and play football with the rugby ball. And then the, the, the rugby master would make me go stand over in Fayland, over in the corner of the fields for an hour and a half. I mean, you'd be arrested for, ch for child abuse today, but that was what it was like back then. And uh, I hated rugby. And, uh, and I've come to appreciate it now, but love cricket and miss football like you wouldn't believe. But still, passion, loved it, and it was great. So Great. Well, yeah, I mean, we're all football first on this, um, on this podcast. Yeah. That's very much our sport, as, as, as you well know. But um, as we was saying a bit, well, in the intro, I said a bit about the Disney Soccer Showcase. And of course, after you went to school in the UK, you would eventually come over to America, you'd go to college here and do all sorts of stuff, but you'd eventually come to Disney. And then, yeah, you were very much involved with setting up the, the Soccer Showcase, which, as I said, today is um, an incredibly important tournament for a lot of young teenagers who are looking to, you know, make their mark in football and try and get a college scholarship or just kind of, yeah, you know, showcase their skills. So, it's obviously been an incredible success, but when when you look at the Soccer Showcase in its current format today, does it mirror up with the vision you you had for the tournament all the way back when it was being conceptualised? Well, good good question. And so when, when I played high school over here, you've got to imagine this was back in 83, and it was completely different than what we grew up with in England, right? Where everything was centred around the sport, right? Soccer, football was the number one sport period. So... Coming to America, I mean, listen, I left an old boys school and came to Cocoa Beach High School, right? Go try and get that one wrapped around your head. The home of Kelly Slater, the best surfer in the world. Um, and going to school the first day, I showed up in a pair of trousers and a shirt, no tie, and literally got laughed out of the school because everyone was in flip-flop shorts and T-shirts. And I uh, went to Ron John's and, and I got kitted out that night and I felt, felt good the next day. But such a culture shock and culture change, even with the game, playing and training. But I went from training twice a week to training every single day at high school. So it was, it was great in that respect. It was great trying to be in a bigger fish in a smaller pond because a lot of the players over there weren't that advanced. But it was, it, was an, it was a dream come true for me. I was very lucky. Again, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. I was very lucky in that respect uh, in terms of getting that opportunity to come over. And then as my career went on, I went to college, played football in college, and then got this great job at Disney amongst doing other things. And this, the soccer showcase came out of playing in a high school tournament here in Orlando where only four teams were invited. And then all the college coaches would come in to offer scholarships, which could amount to $20,000, $25,000 a year in terms of room and board, education, all that good stuff, right? So four teams, we never were invited as Cocoa Beach. So when I got to Disney and I said, right, I want to create a football program now at one of the best destinations, vacation destinations in the world, right? 65, 70 million people a year coming to Orlando. How do we now create something that every kid who wants to play can play and can get seen? 
at its height, I think we were doing close to 50,000 kids playing from all over the world and a, a concentration here in America. And then at Christmas, we created the Boys Soccer Showcase and Girls Soccer Showcase. As you both well know, girls soccer in this country is way more advanced. I'm, the men's team just beat Mexico the other night, brilliant match. So they, they're doing much, much better and most of those players are in Europe now playing. So the showcase itself ended up attracting a thousand college coaches, the biggest college recruiting tournament in the country and, and afforded young people now to get seen. And that was what our goal was. So we achieved that goal in many, many different ways. And there was a lot of people who went into working very, very hard to make that happen. Now with Major League Soccer on board in the USL, which is the second division, there are so many more um, governed events now where the showcase is kind of dropped off a little bit in terms of being the number one event to go to. It's like the FA run their own, like US soccer run their own for the MLS now called MLS Next. But we still have a tremendous amount of college coaches come in and a tremendous amount of young people come in. And now to Kai's point earlier, we're trying to come up with educational opportunities for kids to come in to say, hey, Joe, Kai, you're 13, 14, 15 or 16. You love playing football. How about switching your head over here towards college and then getting a job in sports? Because you might not want to be a doctor or a, uh, an accountant or you know, any of that stuff. I was clueless in school, believe me. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. But now all of a sudden through sports and a way of doing it, we want to try and create an opportunity for young people. And our guest segment goes parents, coaches, and players. So those are the three, and they're all three separate, as you guys would figure that out pretty quickly. So how do we deliver that experience for each segment when they come in and make sure when they walk away, they've had a great tournament experience, but they're also walking away with a bunch of different um, opportunities to move forward. Parents get information about how to get scholarships, how to understand the game, how to coach in their communities if they want to. Coaches now get exposed to people like Sir Alex Ferguson if he comes over and becomes a guest speaker or Jose Mourinho comes over. Now, all of a sudden, they feel like we check the box for them. And then the players, how do we get that atmosphere, Joe, when you first went to a game at Tottenham and that roar, when you walk up the gang, when you walk out and you feel the hair on the back of your neck, I want to now give that to every kid who walks into the Disney facility. And we're trying to figure out how that works and that experience works. So back to your thing, Kai, was how do we create an educational opportunity? We're going to try and shift the game a little bit to always offer the game first, but then how can parents leave with other things? Because it's not cheap either coming to, to our place with all due respect either. So we're working on that uh, as we speak right now. Sticking on Disney and some of the points that you, you mentioned, both you and uh, Reggie Williams at Disney have this you know, innate desire to give kids the best chances in their young sporting lives. And uh, does this, would you say, come from a place where you and Reggie saw room for improvement in the respective avenues that you both went through, kind of youth soccer and being, you know, as I'd referenced, a fly on the wall at Bristol City for yourself, and then obviously it would have been American football for, for Reggie. Did those systems respectively at the time when you were kids need revamping. And I know you've mentioned adding the education and sort of opening up, magnifying these experiences as well, getting celebrated names like Ferguson and Mourinho in and kind of trying to replicate the atmosphere of the professional game. But would you say that it's a better service and the correct service that is the most important thing or simply just making sports more accessible to kids in the first place? Could you just touch a bit more upon how you're doing both of those things at Disney? Well, let, let's start with what you started with Reggie Williams, because if it wasn't for Reggie Williams, I'd never would have gotten the opportunity to do what I did and get brought on on board where Reggie basically looked at me and said, right, get to work and get this football program up, up and running or soccer, as we call it here. 
Reggie came from the NFL, as you said, and was a, was a storied linebacker for the Cincinnati Bengals, played in two Super Bowls. And this gentleman, literally everybody he hired would run through a brick wall for this guy because he motivated everybody to He was the head coach, right? He's the manager. And every day was game day. And he used to say, there, are, there is no, um, failure is not an option. And that was the mantra every single day. And as our business has gone more to a corporate Disney culture versus an authentic sports culture, it's been interesting over 25 years to see that shift. But one thing Reggie Williams instilled in all of us, one, the game should be, the games, all games, any sport should be open to all kids of all backgrounds, diversity, color, whatever. And Reggie would, that was his main goal for the facility when he built it in his dream. So when we did that, we wanted to make sure that the, the kids got to play where the pros played. So we had a whole additional events with professional players, but then we created our own Disney created events underneath for the youth so they could combine. People could see that avenue, not tell them how to get there because you obviously have to be good enough to make it and only a very small percentage of people do. But then how Reggie's vision was, look, we're going to create this place. Let's make it something that's special and we drive the experience. And to be quite frank with you now, there's probably close to 35, 40 major, major facilities in the hundreds of millions of dollars have been built off of capital investment in the United States to replicate what Reggie did at Disney. So one, that's a huge feather in his cap. And all of us who went there now, the ones who are still there, because 25 years later, a lot of people move on and leave. And Reggie's obviously now moved on. Reggie was very lucky in the two knee surgeries he had where he got very, very sick and had some of his leg removed. I mean, this guy went through so many battles in the NFL, it wasn't even funny. So he, he moved on, he lives over on the coast now, and uh, I'm still very uh, much in touch with Reggie. But um, he instilled in all of us, look, you've got to be authentic. No matter what it is, you have to be authentic, and you have to be honest and transparent with young people, right? When you're young, the last thing you want to do sometimes is hear from adult, unless you respect them, and unless you honor them because you love to follow them during the day, if it's your mom and dad, good luck. You're never going to listen to them half the time. So you've got to find somebody that you really want to be involved with. And then that person has a responsibility back to mentor and help. And Reggie was always about that mentoring program, get out into the community. And while we're the Walt Disney Company, the biggest entertainment company in the world, and we have a sports section, now it's your chance. You have that ability now to give back. And we still do that to this day, and we're still trying to do more. But again, as you look around the world today and all the different movements that have taken on more popularity in the last couple of years, it's, it's tragic to see some of the situations that we all look to have pretty comfortable lives with so many young kids. You, I don't know what it is, but you always see them kicking a soccer ball around. <laughs> no matter what country they're in, they either got a Barcelona shirt on or a Tottenham shirt. Sorry, not an Arsenal shirt. But, but they, they, they're walking around with all these shirts on. But what are we doing to give back to these kids? And that's where I would love the Walt Disney Company and our sport specifically to try and come up with something that we can do to give back. So that's, I don't know if that answered your question, but that's a very passionate uh, topic for me. And uh, Reggie was just an amazing guiding light. Yeah, I mean, Reggie sounds like you know, an absolute inspiration, both from his playing days as an NFL player, but then also from his, you know, his, his post-NFL career when he was, yeah, almost like a mentor to you and really, you know, drove things at Disney. But um, so let he, me cut you off, Joe. He, he's helped Ricky Hill over in England with the Rooney rule. So the diversity in the NFL where uh, the majority of the players are black players, the, the minority of coaches were black coaches. And Reggie sat with Ricky when Ricky came over about 10, 12 years ago and was coaching over here. 
And Ricky's, uh, you know, Ricky, and he, he, he was Tampa Bay Rowdy's head coach. He was a coach down in Trinidad and he's never had the opportunity to coach in England. So all of a sudden now Reggie kind of helped Ricky understand what the Rooney rule was. And then Ricky brought that to England. So when you see all these articles in the paper now, and it's the Rooney rule, this and Rooney, Ricky's the one who went to the PFA, the FA, the Football League, the Premier League, and he instilled all that. Now, a lot of other people take credit for it, but Ricky was one of those pioneers who really went in there for equality and diversity, where a lot of the players now in the Premier League and all of our divisions back in England are people of colour. And therefore, the managers and the executives and the owners should also be people of colour, at least in a diverse way from a percentage standpoint, where everybody has a chance to, to be part of that. So I'll, I'll get off my soapbox now, but I just wanted to make sure that Ricky, Ricky and Reggie, Reggie really helped Ricky with that whole uh, Rooney rules stuff so oh well, that's you know it's fantastic to know and obviously we were lucky enough well last summer now and time's gone by so quickly we got the chance to speak to Ricky he spoke so passionately about it and then uh, I know he released his book this year as well which I still yeah. need still need to get around to read and you know I recommend other people do as well but let's um let's talk a bit about Orlando City obviously the MLS team in well in Orlando surprisingly and I know Patrick you're um look you're a Spurs fan Bristol City's in your heart but you're also you're also a keen Orlando City supporter, you know, ever since they were founded back in, I think, 2013. And I know you, I've seen um, on Facebook and stuff, you're often at the Exploria Stadium cheering on the Lions, as I think they're known. So um, what have you made of the club's journey so far? And also, has, has the club been successful in kind of embedding itself into the sort of wider Orlando sporting culture? Or is that still something that is kind of the next step on their, on their journey? Well, that's a great question. So... Let me answer it two ways. So Orlando Magic, the NBA, right? We had Shaquille O'Neal. We had Penny Hardaway. Um, we had all these different major players that came in on the draft and made Orlando more of a sports city, right? We're not New York. We're not Philadelphia. We're not Los Angeles. Um, we're a small town, close to a million people in total in Orlando. And it's an entertainment town, right? We support the theme parks. It's, it's a very... Uh, and this last... Uh, covid situation with furloughs and people losing their jobs was immense for this community because so many people were out of work but the sports teams uh, especially orlando city and by the way as a soccer person i would have never told you there would have been a 200 million dollar stadium built in downtown orlando a half a mile away from the citrus bowl which has 75,000 seats and where we hosted the 1994 world cup and if you come to Orlando, you've got the NBA Center, which is beautiful. You've got this football stadium right next to it. And then right behind it, you've got the huge, huge bowl uh, where all the American football games take place and where it's just been announced where Arsenal, Inter Milan, Everton and a team from Colombia will play this summer. So all of a sudden now sports has become inherently important in Orlando. So the, the city's behind it. The government's behind it. The soccer person, like myself, who used to be with the Orlando Lions back in when we were in our 20s, and 300 people were showing up to watch a game, and it was all the old Brits playing, and they're all still living here in Central Florida. To get 65,000 people to come to a game when it first kicked off, before the new stadium was built at the Citrus Bowl, blew my mind. The second game, they got 62,000, and it was fill the bowl. And everybody came out. And it was like, look, Joe, sometimes people are clapping for a corner kick. All right, get it. You've got to learn the culture. You've got to understand what it's all about. But over time, they've done that. The new stadium, Joe, is brilliant. So they got the back end of the home is all standing up. 
they have a section for the band. So they're drumming away. They got the fireworks. They got, and it's all purple. I mean, the entire stadium is purple. So they sell out with 28,000 people. And I got to tell you, the atmosphere is different than back home because, again, I think that there's a lot of informed fans, but still it's different. It's America, right? It's not set up like Europe and the rest of the world where you're getting, you're getting three points for a game, but winning the league really doesn't mean anything. You're just trying to get into a spot to get into the knockout competition at the end of the season. That's my biggest gripe with the league. And it, therefore, I think there's less of an input to go to the game sometimes during the season because when we go to the season, we want Tottenham or, or Kai wants Arsenal to win the league. That's what we want. That's what the fans want. And then all the other competitions are fantastic. We want to win those two. Over here, it's a lot different. It's more of an American franchise system. And um, that bothers me a little bit. But I, listen, at the end of the day, the Brazilian owner, Flavio, um, who came in and probably put close to $500 million of his own personal money in, no tax dollars were given. He built everything himself. He's actually looking to sell the team right now to the Wilf family from Minnesota. And the Wilf family are minority owners in Nashville but a huge family financially and looking to come in now to the Orlando market to really take it to the next level. As well as, as far as success goes, we made the playoffs for the first time in six years last year. So not being great. We've had more managers come through. We have Oscar Pereira now, who used to be the under 21 national team coach. who's done phenomenal. He got them into the playoffs. We have Nanny playing here in Orlando. We had Kakar playing here in Orlando. Biggest problem though, Joan, I know I'm rattling on here, but the biggest problem is the heat. We play during the summer. It's literally, I'm looking outside my window, it's 95 degrees right now. And it's hot and it's not been raining for a couple of months. So you can imagine playing in that kind of temperate and it's, it's not easy. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that, that certainly doesn't help things. But it's interesting that you mentioned, obviously, Kaka, Nani. I know Pato, I think, is, is current yeah. as well. So, look, Orlando have... Um, have done well in bringing stars to the city. And well, here's an interesting thing. Let's talk about the MLS designated player protocol. So on the one hand, you know, bringing players like Kaka to Orlando is great. And it, in, on the one hand, you could argue it inspires young American um, soccer fans to kind of want to play football or kind of be the next Kaka. But on the other hand, you could argue it's taking away a place of a, an American player who, you know, is trying to make their way in the game. So where, where do you where do you stand on that? Is there is there more value in bringing the superstars in than, yeah, is there more pros than cons to it is really what I'm asking. I'll tell you what, I, I got such an opinion on this. People will probably not appreciate what I say, but this cannot be a retirement league. OK, so when you hear of the players, i.e. Frank Lampard, Steven Gerrard, Wayne Rooney. Wayne Rooney, by the way, was absolutely prolific over here when he was at DC United. And if you look on the YouTube videos and see some of the goals he scored, he was great. Um, Robbie Keane was another one who went to LA Galaxy along with Ibrahimovic, David Beckham, of course. And I was hoping my colleague would be here today. He was the president of the LA Galaxy, Tom Payne. He could be walking in any minute because Tom has more amazing stories of how he got David Beckham on board at the LA Galaxy when he did. That really saved Major League Soccer. The, the, out of the 12 teams, six were owned by one, one owner. Go figure that out. Phil Anschultz. And David Beckham came in and literally changed the face of it. Because now all of a sudden, you not only had a good player who worked hard every game, but was the right attitude and was great on television. So the whole entire United States just came around this guy and really kicked the league to that next level. And... But what I don't appreciate, Joe, is some of these players who've come over and they're, they're designated players, so therefore they can be paid 
a certain amount of money and only an allocation gets put against the salary cap. Good luck teaching the salary cap to the British fans because they'll just look at you with three heads. So the salary cap here is, is, is an interesting way of how the game functions, right? It's a single entity league. So all decisions are made by the league, not the clubs. Transfers, money, is, it's, it's a whole different ballgame. So all of a sudden now, um, the DP, there's three per team. I don't know if you've read, but David Beckham's in a lot of trouble down in, in into Miami because they had five players. And Paul McDonough, who was their general manager and a good friend of mine, unfortunately was the one who ended up taking the hit for that. But it's, it's very difficult. Sometimes you've got to have a very good degree in finance to make sure you're not going over, you're not going under. But Joe, to your question, there are too many players who are quoted as saying, with all due respect to Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi, they're both saying, well, I'm going to come over to the United States and play when I'm 36. No, that's not good enough. And I think the league should say to Messi's and the Ronaldo's and the Lampard's and Gerard's, if you want to come over and play, we'll pay you when you play. When you're sitting out for six months and you're flying back and forth to England to be on BT or Sky, we're not going to pay you. And that's where David Beckham was always present, always here, sat on the planes. There wasn't any first class seats. And when there were first class seats, he gave them up for the other players. He sat back and coached with all the rest of the, of the plane. Good. That's the right thing to do. So all of a sudden now, i got a major issue with these DPs. So it looks like the U.S. national team has a lot of young players coming through who are good. They're all playing in Europe. They're not playing in the MLS. So it, I don't know, Joe. I, I, sometimes I just get really upset and get really animated. As you can tell, I'm getting animated now. But it gets to me because people do think it's a retirement league and that's got to change. I've got a question that we'll touch upon kind of the, the future of um, American prospects in, in just a moment. But back to something that you mentioned, Patrick, about clubs like I think you said Arsenal, um, Everton, Inter and a Colombian side going to Disney for a, a tournament, which I suppose you might as well call the Mickey Mouse Cup. I'm surprised that Spurs aren't involved because that's probably their best chance. I'll have the season desist the email coming right at you. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to take uh, take the opportunity to get that one in there. But back to uh, the chin. You can lift up, you know, I'll get in trouble. No, no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll move on from that one. Um, but Patrick, you're, you're essentially an expert in planning tournaments. So I want to get your thoughts on an upcoming tournament. It's still a few years off, but the 2026 World Cup will be hosted in America, Canada, and Mexico. Um, so this is where I'm getting at with regards to the, to the future of, of, of football in the States. What, in your opinion, from a planning perspective, makes a good tournament? And then what can you see this upcoming World Cup doing for football in the United States? Well, great. So 94, if, how old were you then, Kai? Were you even born in oh, 94? Gosh, I was born in 94, so it's uh, <laughs> not very old at all, basically. Oh, my Lord, I feel old <laughs> So I remember going, Joe, I've got a great story. I'll tell you off, off the podcast, but with your granddad going to Orlando City and going through three, three police gates leading into the stadium. And my dad just waving at them and keeps driving. We end up parking in a house and walk across the street to the Citrus Bowl. Island played uh, Morocco. It was, it was, it was hilarious. But, um, but the, the, having the World Cup here, so we're one of the 16 cities vying for 10 places. Orlando's so you've got Nashville you've got Cincinnati I think you know Kansas you've got all these different uh cities who are vying for these 16 spots LA's got that beautiful new stadium that they built that's going to obviously either be where the final is but that's a given right but we're going up against Atlanta beautiful stadium the Mercedes-Benz Stadium and Miami which is the which is obviously where the Miami Dolphins play 
um, and is owned by Steve Ross. Steve Ross owns the ICC tournament, what was where you see all the European teams every summer go play in the preseason tournaments. That's all owned and operated by Steve, Steve Ross at Relevant Sports. So all of a sudden now, your question was, had, had, so we've got to make sure by October, we put our best foot forward and make sure Orlando's a destination, one of the 10 cities. Now, having, what do you do to get that? You better have the best people involved, bar none. But right now, what you have involved are politicians because they're all politicking to make sure that Orlando is this, Orlando is that. But what they also have to do, and they formed a committee, and I'm, luckily enough, I'm on that, where the experts who have different expertise are in the room. Can you imagine, Kai, if you were representing England and bringing England, you came over on a site visit, to see if the hotels, the training ground, the stadium, the airport, um, you'd have to figure all that out. And you have to do that two or three years out, right? To get the best places. So we now have people in place to deliver that. So does Miami, so does Atlanta. I think we've got way better expertise in those cities, but that's what we have to rely on our politicians to make sure that they put in front of these federations when they come in. So right now, you know, we're all waiting and, and, and crossing our fingers for October there's going to be meetings leading into that, but making sure you have the real background expertise to put on events. This isn't about sitting in the chair and drinking a beer and, and, and waving your popcorn. This is about the, the hard work that you have to do, training venues, hotels, meals, all this stuff. The COVID thing has thrown in a, a massive um, curveball at all of us over here. The NBA came to Disney and they were literally in a bubble for three months. So you're talking about LeBron James not being able to leave his hotel and and you're dealing with athletes making millions and millions of dollars you just want to see their families so COVID gone hopefully out out the way World Cup comes and Orlando becomes one of those cities to me that's that's probably my next projection in terms of the next big thing that's got to happen for soccer in this part of the world it helps the league it helps everybody let's not forget in 94 and I, I and if you guys can find out the fact on this that World Cup made more money for FIFA than any World Cup from a business perspective, based on the stadium, based on the travel, the interest, and the people wanting to come to the United States. So I hope there's something that FIFA looks at where there's more to give back. Um, we all know about the, uh, the corruption and everything else, but let, let's look positive and think, if it does come to the United States and the money is made, let's hope it gets put back into the game at the right levels. That is definitely what we want. and I mean, it sounds like... An incredibly exciting tournament. I'm almost looking, I'm more looking forward to that than I am 2022 Qatar. Don't, don't forget, man, I've got a place for you upstairs so you could come. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that makes it even better as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I'll have to put that in now a few, a few yeah. ahead of time. But um, that does, um, that does sadly actually bring us to the end of today's podcast. So, as always, a big thank you to my co host, Kaitel. And then, of course, from the both of us, a big special thank you to my uncle, Patrick Dick. So, um, Patrick, we hope you've enjoyed being our guest. And also, um, how can our listeners best keep up to date with everything you're, you're doing at the moment? Well, I'm available through my social media on Facebook at Patrick Dix and also on LinkedIn. Um, and that's basically where I give all the updates on our sports and what we're doing and what's, what's upcoming. So, uh, you know, you can check me out there. And if not, they can get a hold of you, Joe, and they can get a hold of me through you. Well, fine. Of course, that is an option too. Well, thanks again, Thank Patrick. Always great speaking to an expat, regardless of North London allegiances. We'll, we'll let that slide. But as far as our listeners and viewers, we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, if you did, please do follow or subscribe wherever it is that you found us. We are at United Mates 
FP across our various social media channels, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, if you're looking for us on Spotify or Apple podcasts or, or YouTube, if you want to put any faces to these voices, just look for United Mates football podcast. The website is unitedmatesfp.com. We've got some uh, articles that are coming out as well as all of the podcasts that we release. Yanni, one of our uh, United Mates teams, just uh, written a series about the respective national anthems uh, for the clubs participating in the upcoming Euro tournament. So give that a look. Otherwise, until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Goodbye.